Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Stop. Iki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance Tine. Later in the show, we've got a wee tale about a wallaby that you could say is the shark of the marsupial world. Stick around to find out why. But first, when the first Polynesians arrived in New Zealand, they discovered a land rich in tall trees and useful fibres such as harakeki or New Zealand flax. Wooden gardening tools waka or canoes made from various timbers, woven fish traps and nets, all became vital parts of the culture. Most of these early items have disappeared over time, but a few have managed to survive. They turn up buried in mud or hidden in a wetland. These soggy taonga usually end up visiting archaeologist Dillis Johns for a while, and I'm off to the University of Auckland to find out more about her work with waterlogged wood. My speciality is the study of wet organic archaeological materials and the sites from which they come. In the lab we've got several um, tanks where the artefacts are treated or conserved and um, a large frost-free freezer down one corner and a freeze-dryer in another corner and a large fume hood and um, next door we have a microscope room where we look at the wood. And luckily, being on site, we're able to use um, other departments for other analytical tools. So these tanks that you've just mentioned, Mm. um, why do you have to have these tanks, and what are you doing in them? Most of the objects that we conserve in this lab are wood. Not all, but um, there's other organics like shell or leather but mostly it's wood, and um, they range from small artefacts like combs to large waka. So when wood's in the ground, it slowly degrades, and um, what happens is that the cellulose degrades and water floods into the cells, and the artefacts keep their shape because they're loaded with water, essentially. So when they're taken out of the ground and the water evaporates off, the cells collapse, and that collapse is not like shrinking. It's, it's irreversible cell collapse, and, that's, and that manifests itself in the form of cracks and delamination and warping and all the things that we associate with degraded wood. So the first step for you is when somebody finds an artefact that's been wet, you need to keep it wet. Exactly, and not just wet. Preferably, if it's a waterlogged, degraded artefact, preferably immersed in water because any moisture drop below full fibre saturation results in some damage. Mm. Where might these things come from? So they come from a range of sites, really. They can be um, the result of a systematic excavation. Um, So I'm going down to Papua Nui Inlet next week and we're going to excavate there so that, that's an um, organised excavation but more often than not the artefacts that come into this lab and sometimes in the other labs are chance, what we call chance finds so they're exposed as a result of um, storm or um, somebody doing some development or that sort of um, thing 
If it was portable and quite small, I'd probably suggest, if, if that's all they had, that one alone artefact, which is unusual, I would get them to put it, immerse it in water and then um, wrap it and it would probably be brought up to Auckland by those people. Hmm. And then once it arrives here in Auckland, what mm. would you do with it? The first thing we usually do is wood identification and then I um, assess how degraded they are and then the design the treatment and the first thing that happens is that they're usually treated with PEG. So by exchange, which is very slow, we load the cells with a substance called polyethylene glycol and when the concentration is correct, then they're taken out of the tank or out of their solution and frozen and after they're frozen, they're then freeze-dried um, in the freeze dryer, and then they go home to the MRI. It's also a really time-consuming process. It is very time-consuming, and frequently with cons- in conservation, you put when you want to impregnate something, you put it in a chamber and vacuum out the oxygen, and then flood the chamber. But we can't um, pull out the water because as the water goes out, the cells collapse. So um, we have to exchange the water for this substance, which I'll show you. In a cupboard. It comes in a range of different molecular weights from this, this um, substance that looks a bit like oil but it doesn't behave like oil because it's totally miscible with water to um, the highest molecular weight which is a bit like candle wax really. So it doesn't actually offer a lot of strength to the artefacts. What it does is allow them to keep their shape but they still need to be stored in fairly stringent um, environmental conditions. And it's a benign substance? Yes, it's wonderful. It's Miscible in water, it's not toxic, um, it's almost totally reversible, but it's expensive. And its other big drawback is it's, of course, slow because it's by exchange. Um, so what kind of things have you got in your tanks at the moment? A lot of horticultural implements, um, a couple of small wokker, uh, a fish trap, several different types of bowls, the whole range of uh, wet organic material. So wet organics were quite important to pre-contact Māori you know, because most of what they used was um, organic, not stone and bone, although they did use those materials, but their everyday life was wood and flax and other organic materials, which of course degrade if they're left on the surface, but if they're interred in a wet site where there's little oxygen, they survive. But they only survive in a compromised sort of way, you know, that, that if they're taken out and allowed to dry, then they, if they're degraded, they fall to pieces, yeah. Am I right in thinking that lack of oxygen is key to preserving yes, things? Yes, yes, yeah. And with being waterlogged, there's a lack of oxygen, but, you know, the best thing is, is no oxygen. That's why they survive in arid environments, because you know, no creatures can grow. That's what we want, yeah. And how long will the item stay in there? You say it's a slow process. Well, if they're really small, like this tiny little beater here, that could take as, as little as sort of, I don't know, six to eight months. But because it's, got, it, it's long and thin, it only has a certain amount of ingrain available, and so um, exchange is slow. Whereas if you have a lot of ingrain and it was really short and fat, then it would be much quicker. And then you've got things in here that have completed their treatment? Yes, so these um, Tawanga are waiting to go home. So they've been packed archivally in these boxes and I like to make sure that everything is packed properly before it leaves here because it might be the last packing it gets for some time. So they're packed in um, archival foam and um, in nests of Tyvek, which is a, a museum material that's used for artefacts. And um, they're pretty stable like this as long as they're kept in an environment 
that's 20 plus or minus 2 degrees and around 55% um, RH, relative humidity. So what have you got in this box? They look so beautiful. So these are, they're very lovely, aren't they? Um, there's two fern root beaters here and um, two mauls. So what do mauls get used for? I imagine that they were used to bang posts in and those sorts of things, yeah. You can see that very clearly the manufacturing detail, the adzing, you know, of when it was made. So how long have you had these in your care? They've been here a long time because um, they've been subject to the Māori Land Court. So if there's more than one claimant, then um, if it can't be resolved, it usually goes to the Māori Land Court and they make a decision. Yeah, Pretty sure these Taonga will be glad to get home. Now, you also must have things that are too big to bring here into this lab. So if the collection is too large or can also just be one artefact that's very large. And at the moment I've got six satellite labs conserving waka around New Zealand. And it has the added bonus, I think, of st- the, the, the Tonga stay with their iwi and, and they're kept warm and it means that um, their um, iwi are involved with conservation because when I've finished my work, the people that will look after them will be their owners. Yeah, so it's, it's, it has lots, I think it has lots of advantages, yeah. Polynesians are known for their ocean voyaging, for their waka or canoe building skills and their ability to navigate across vast areas of ocean. Polynesians arrived in New Zealand on big double-hulled sailing waka. Over time, Māori culture evolved and they adapted their waka building craft to take advantage of New Zealand timbers and their need for coastal boats for travel and trade. Only a few examples of early walkers survive, and Dillis has been working with one such taonga out on Auckland's west coast. So we've driven out to Murawai out on the west coast of Auckland, and uh, we're looking at something that's quite a bit bigger than anything you had in your conservation lab at the university, Dillis. That's right, yes. This is a, a walker that's seven metres long that was found down the beach um, here at Murawai, and we brought it back here, and um, it's now in its custom-built tank. So tell me a bit more about the story of it. When was it found out here? It was found close to Christmas time several years ago. Um, A guy was actually looking for wood to carve and he saw a piece of curved wood and fell to his knees and started grubbing around but it just went on and on and on. And So then um, he got some help and then when they realised it was a walker um, they got in touch with me and said, can you come out and have a look for us? So initially what we did was we just, um, in order to keep it wet, we built a temporary tank with bits of 4x2 and lined it with um, builder's plastic and filled it with water and put the walker into it. And then we built this tank, um, which has served us well. It's a very big tank and Dillis is just rolling some things off the roof so she can actually open it. It's actually quite degraded, this poor walker but um, it's responded really well to treatment. Um, that's either the bow or the stern. We don't know which, which end it is. And this end is missing. But it's seven metres with that end missing, so it could easily have been you know, one or two metres longer than this. So you must have used quite a lot of peg on it. Yes, we used a lot of peg. So what other techniques have you used, scientific methods have you used to help you in this project? We laser scanned it and got a 3D image of by putting it into architectural software and got a 3D image of it and I used that to give to the design engineer to make the cradle for it. So the cradle that it's in now is made of stainless steel because the peg actually is uh, 
can be quite corrosive on mild steel. And um, it's been sitting in the cradle and drying into the cradle. So, and so that will be the cradle that it goes to, you know, on the Mariah or wherever it um, ends up. That was really, and continues to be a really important aspect of what we do using um, 3D laser scanning to get images. So you've scanned the entire walker? Yes, yes. What we did for that was um, we hoisted it up on a high ab in very wide slings and um, had it up all day whilst we scanned it. You've dried it all out, it's but it's wrapped, now. In, it's wrapped in plastic. Mm, so I put so in, whilst we find a venue for it, I've added water, quite a lot of water, into the base of the tank and covered it in plastic, and it keeps the RH about eighty-eight percent, which is we want to keep it high, so that it's stable here. So tell me a bit more about this walker. What kind of wood is it made from? So this uh, walker is made from kauri. Um, walker were more often than not um, made of kauri from latitude thirty. Upwards, you know, because it's such a beautiful timber for boats and sits well on the water. It has a, an unusual feature in the middle of it. It has a little area which we think may have been a, a mast step, which means, of course, that they were not only so paddling but sailing. Yeah, and of course, it would have had side strikes, but we don't have any um, original gunwales, so we don't know how how wide or deep it was. So this then was just the base of it? Yeah, that's right, it's the dugout component, yeah. So how old is it? We're not sure about the dates, but probably just pre-contact. You know, there's real issues with dating waka because you date the tree, not the cultural activity. So this one's quite a recent waka. You've had some other ones which are a bit older? The oldest one I've treated, we dated the corking, so that was dating the last voyage of the walker because they used to re-cork every few years. Um, and that was 660 before the present, which is taken from 1950. So that's probably within a few generations of Polynesians arriving in New Zealand to become Māori. And that's the one with a, a turtle carved on the outside of it. No, so tell me about that one. That sounds great. Yeah, that was found on the northwest tip of the South Island at a place called Anaweka. It's a completely different construction. to So the Māori canoe that we all sort of know and love really are the five, what we call five-piece canoe. So it has a dugout piece and two side strakes and a bow and a stern. But the waka from Anaweka was um, a complete piece, but it has lashing roll um, holes around its complete perimeter and uh, four ribs um, to help it keep its shape and a stringer. So in a way, we think it was sort of using Polynesian templates with new timbers so it was made in Matai so it was made in New Zealand but um, it looks as if the canoe makers were thinking of the way that they normally make canoes yeah so we think that then they realise you know there's huge trees here and we can dig out the middle and do it in a different way but that's what we're thinking at the moment how many waka have you conserved now I think about 15 so this one is made of kauri what other timber have you found walkers made of? So the one in Wellington is made of totara and um, Anawaka is made of, um, that's the one with the turtle, is matai and then the one on um, Otago Peninsula is totara and then I've got a little walker in Invercargill that's being conserved um, in a gallery so people can watch the process and that's made of rimu which is very unusual. Yeah. Oh and then I nearly forgot the Waikato Delta walker which is made of kauri. So what's it like returning one of these taonga, one of these treasures, t- to an iwi? It's a huge privilege, really. I think that I've been very lucky to uh, be able to do this work. And because I'm the only person that does it in New Zealand, it makes it 
that much more special that you know that there's there's no other way of getting it done it has of course provided a lot of information for, for research but it's nice to be out of the university with the people whom these tanga belong to you know and get both sides of the story because i know that i can only give the scientific side and that there's a, a really important iwi side and together we can make a, a full picture well for iwi it must be significant because it's a direct connection with their ancestors absolutely yeah these are not just artifacts they are their ancestors and so yeah it's a tangible way of connecting with their past thanks dillis that was dillis johns from the university of auckland Kate Fakaronga mai kwai kito tato alhorihori kitareo irirangi o aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance, and this is Our Changing World on RNZ National. And if you'd like to stay in touch, we are on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is RNZ Science. Now, I love quirky natural history facts, so here's some toothy trivia that I discovered recently from Australian PhD student Kamaria Nazrula when she was in New Zealand for a paleontology conference. Now, I'm completely intrigued because I read about your research and I've always been brought up with mammals like us. We have two sets of teeth. We have our baby teeth and our adult teeth, whereas animals like sharks can continually replace their teeth. There's always teeth in behind. Now, you're looking at teeth replacement in mammals. Can you tell me about that? There's this amazing wallaby species. We call it the narbalek. It's a type of rock wallaby from the Petrogale genus, and it has continuous tooth replacement. Um, it's one of five mammals in the world that can do continuous tooth replacement, including the manatees and the silvery mole rat. So basically it can make up to 80 teeth in its lifetime in each tooth row. OK, whoa, so let's unpick that. So <laughs> five species of mammals... Manatee, what was it, a mole rat? Um, there's three manatee species and the silvery mole rat and then the and wallaby. The wallaby. And it's the only marsupial to do this. So can you explain to me the tooth replacement? So, you know, compared to humans where the first set of teeth falls out, it's replaced by the second set of teeth. If you lose those ones, that's the end. So kangaroos and wallabies do this thing called molar progression where they actually replace their teeth horizontally so the whole uh, row of teeth move forward and the frontmost tooth falls out and a new back one erupts but most other species just do this once. The narbalek just keeps doing this so it's like a conveyor belt, a perpetual conveyor belt of teeth. So it goes from the back and moves the to teeth moves round to the front? Yep, and they keep falling out the front and uh, keep growing um, from the back. So what do you think is going on with that species of wallaby that that, that it's got this continual conveyor belt and the others don't? Well, they have a pretty special diet. They eat ferns, which are highly abrasive, but we're not sure whether the adaptation just happened, like a random mutation in a population, and then they were able to eat ferns, or whether they started eating ferns first, and then um, some individuals got this uh, mutation. Either way, they probably couldn't eat the ferns without having... Uh, this tooth replacement. Definitely. Um, they would probably wear all their teeth out and just starve to death. So the fact that we've got it in a silvery mole rat, manatees and wallabies, has it just all arisen completely independently in those three different groups? That's what we're not sure about, whether it's the same gene that's been switched on in all these three mammals. Maybe it's an ancestral condition shared amongst all mammals um, and it's just um, randomly switched on in a... a different species or whether they've arrived at it independently. So still um, trying to find out the genes that control it. 
It's fascinating. So this little wallaby is like the shark of the, of the wallaby world. Yeah, it definitely is, but much friendly. <laughs> Thanks, Kamaria. That was Kamaria Nazrullah, and she's a PhD student at Monash University in Australia. And in another claim to marsupial fame, for a long time the Nabalek was known as Australia's smallest wallaby, until the discovery of an even smaller species, the Monjon in 1978, relegated it to second smallest. Right, that's enough dental drama for tonight. But if you'd like to get your teeth into tonight's stories again, or check out the web features which include photos and useful links, then just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. While you're there, you can also sign up for our weekly email alert. You can find that at the bottom of the page, along with links to collections such as the Our Changing World Bird Collection, featuring everything from albatrosses to penguins and kakapo. If you have an appetite for science, it's very easy to find all the recent RNZ stories. Just click the Topics tab at rnz.co.nz and you'll find the Science and Environment tab. Thanks for your company. I'm back next week, but until then, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai topo.